Um, Rabbi Jonathan Kolach, uh, May 31st, uh, 2008, a study of classical uh, Perushim through the lens of Jewish history. That's a kosher shear. teaching in many different places over the years, and uh, in the last uh, six years or so, I decided in the course of uh, a course that I was teaching in several places on Parshanut Mikra, I decided to write, uh, begin writing a series of books uh, called, which I called Masters of the Word, and the second volume just came out, um, and so I came to the stage in order to promote it, and the lecture that I'm going to give today is based upon the thesis of the book. That all the great Pashanim, uh, Bible commentators, in each chapter devoted to a different Bible commentator or group, <coughs> explaining who they were, when they lived, uh, um, what the historical context was at the time, what their shita, what their approach is to explaining the, the Chumash, and then at the end, it's set up according to the Parashat Shavua, to give examples from the Parashat Shavua that brings out Today's their solid approach and the uh, uniqueness of their commentary. <coughs> the second volume that just came out is Rashi, Rashbam, Bakar Shah, Hizkuni, and an and a few others. If I were to ask people, uh, this is the Negro Kizalot, um, who were these Bakarshim? Who, uh, who wrote in the Mikrovsky Dolos, who they were, when they lived, why they wrote their commentary, such as Onkulas, Rashi, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, Orachayim, Kuliyok, Arzbano, Tanskeni, Vali Tosfot, Balaturim, Yonatan Beluzio, those that appear in the classic uh, Mikrovsky Dolos. If I was to ask people in here, how many people would be able to answer who they were, when they lived, what they were about, why they wrote their commentaries. Probably not too many, and probably we, we would not be that familiar with them. <coughs> but you could say, who cares? It's irrelevant. The main thing is the commentary that they wrote, and what they had to say about the Chumash, and how they explain the Chumash, because after all, the Torah is eternal, it is um, forever, and uh, it's irrelevant from the particular place or time. And uh, the truth is that that's true. The Torah is uh, an eternal uh, book that has a message, Lidorot, it's a Nebuah Lidorot, and it's a message Lidorot, and it's irrelevant when and where the commentary was written that explains it. However, <clears throat> one of the things that I noticed was that there are certain books that appear at certain times, such as, let's say, Nechom Alegwitz's works on the Chumash. Is it um, coincidental that Nechom Alegwitz, around 50 years ago, began to write 
on the Chumash, and that subsequent to that, we have a whole slew of commentary written by women on the Chumash. Well, in my opinion, to disagree with me, but in my opinion, it's very much linked up with the movement of the 20th century, the feminist movement, which began at the beginning of the century. And as a result of it, doesn't mean it's a direct result, but tied up with the rise and the more prominence of women in society, you begin to have commentary written by women, which you don't have for the hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. There's another book that came out recently, uh, Eretz Israel and Parshat Shabua, which was published recent, recently. Is it coincidental that there's a book that's devoted that every single week there's a different theme of the Parshat Shabua that's related to Eretz Israel? Is that coincidental? So in my opinion, it's obvious that because of Zionism and because of the fact that Am Yisrael has returned to Eretz Israel, there's a book and there are many books that are focused on the role of Eretz Israel, so that there is a connection between <coughs> the commentary that's being written and what is happening in the society around us. And it's the theme <coughs> of this book, not the major theme, but one of the themes, because in each chapter I discuss the times of the commentary and the connection that sometimes it's uh, suggestions, sometimes it's documented, of the connection between the time that the commentary, whether it's Rashi, Rashbam, Bukhar Shah, Ebenezer, the time that he lived in, and his general approach to commentary, and even particular comments that that commentary is making. And I would like to demonstrate this thesis with four examples. The first one is from volume one, from the Sajidon. The second one is from volume two, from the Rashbam. The third one is from volume four, uh, six, if I ever get to it, the Kliyazar. And the fourth one will be from volume seven, again, if I get to it, uh, of the Tzor Hamar of Rabbi Yaakov Saba, who probably most people have not heard of, but hopefully you'll be familiar with today. <coughs> so let's begin with Sadia Gaon. I assume everybody's familiar with Sadia Gaon. <clears throat> His commentary is uh, not familiar to us. If you read the Mikrosi Talot of uh, Torah Chayim of Moshad Rakhuk, you'll see that there's an entry over there taken from the Tafsir, which was written by Sajid Gaon, which is a running translation of the Torah into Arabic. Sajid Gaon lived in Baghdad, Iraq. He ended up there. He, wasn't, he was born in Fostad, uh, Egypt. He ended up becoming the Gaon, the leader of the Jewish world centered in Baghdad, Iraq, of all places. We would not want to be caught there today. And uh, but that was the center of world jury at the time. <clears throat> because world jury had been living in Iraq, the language of the people no longer was Hebrew and no longer was Aramaic, and the translation of the Torah into Aramaic was no longer understood. So Sadiqon had to translate the Torah into Arabic in order for us, in order for our ancestors to understand the Torah. Very much similar today, that the Torah has to be translated by art scroll into English and all the commentaries so people can understand it. It's somewhat um, uh, it's ironic that the tafsir that appears in the Mikro Kedolot 
is a translation back from the Arabic into Hebrew so that we can understand it, so that we can understand the tafsir that uh, was done by Kapak years ago, in order so that we can understand the comments that he made. Now that's not his major commentary. His major commentary was a longer commentary, which was written also in Arabic. Most of it was lost over the years because Unfortunately, it was written in <coughs> Arabic, and most of the works that were written in Arabic were lost. The works that we have, Baruch Hashem, are those that are written in Hebrew. Uh, the to whether to write the book in Hebrew or English, for that reason, because in another 200 years, who knows what language we'll be speaking, uh, but I figured I should be concerned with right now. Rabbi wrote in Arabic, right, except for the Mishnah Torah, which he wrote in, in Hebrew Baruch Hashem. Um, <clears throat> so, in his longer work on Gracious, I want to give an example of a comment that he made. But before I do, I have to explain a little of his background. Sadiqon lived in Baghdad, which was a society that was open to everybody. Baghdad, believe it or not, was a community that was, that included, it was a very open society that included Ma- Muslims. Islam had begun, this was already the late 800s. Islam began in the early 600s uh, with the appearance of Muhammad somewhere around 613 a year. And, uh, and around 200 years later, it grew and grew, it conquered most of the world. And the Jewish world, at that time, Baruch Hashem for Islam at that time, because they were a lot more positive towards Judaism, and uh, the Gaonek was able to conquer the whole world, control the, and, and to expand and to unify the world because of the, the spread of Islam, unlike uh, what's happening with today. Um, and um, there was a lot of exchange. It was an open society. There was a lot of exchange in Baghdad between Christianity, Islam, uh, Sufism, Atheism, Judaism, there were all these exchanges, and Jews were exposed to all these other religions. Now, in his commentary to the Akeda, uh, the Akeda is a very difficult uh, piece of the Torah. Uh, the Akeda has many problems, but at that time, one of the additional problems was a problem that does not necessarily affect us so much, but was a problem at that time because Islam had a, um, uh, a, a belief called uh, Sakh, uh which said that religion and prophecy can change. That God can command one thing and then he can give a later command that can override it. He commands, can command a certain thing and um, later and this is true not only inter-religions, from one religion to the next, but also within uh, Islam as well. And their argument was that you're right. Islam, Muhammad, accepted the veracity of Abraham and the prophecies of Abraham and the prophecies of Moses. They were all legitimate. However, this principle says that God can override with a new prophecy, he can override the old revelation, and although Judaism at one point was a valid religion, God revealed himself later to Muhammad, and now Judaism is no longer necessary, and now the true religion is Islam. And that's the basis, that's one of the arguments of Islam that was presented to the Jewish people. 
And what's the proof of it? One of the proofs for it is the story of the Akedah. Because the Akedah is God tells Abraham that you should know that I'm going to give you a son and that son is going to be Isaac. And he is going to be the progenitor of the descendants of the Jewish people. And Kimi Yitzchak then we have the Akedah. The Akedah is another command that says that take this son who I promised you who is going to be the leader of the Jewish people of your, the future descendants and I want you to take him and raise him and up as an Ola to God and presumably sacrifice him. How could you see? God is contradicting himself. And this is, Sadiqan writes in his commentary, this is a proof, the Muslims bring this as a proof that God can give one command and one revelation and then he can overturn it later and that's true by the whole religion of Islam and this is the source for it in the Torah. Now the, the Mepharshim ourselves have been troubled by it. Rashi quotes the Midrash and Rashi is bothered by this and he says that God, when God revealed himself he said I never told you to sacrifice Isaac I told you put him up on the altar and then take him down I didn't tell you to kill him and in fact that's the first solution Sajigong gives four solutions that's the first of the four solutions that Sajigong presents presents another few the last one he presents is that there's a difference and then this fits in again with the defense of Judaism. There's a difference between an individual command, a prophecy, a, a command to an individual such as Abraham, where you can overturn it, and a revelation to an entire people, such as at Har Sinai, when God revealed himself to the whole people, where that will never be revoked, and that's eternal, and that can never be changed. And that's his response. Sadiqan is coming in, again, this is not the major, but although there are many parts of Sadiqan's commentary that are directed to defend Jews against arguments from Islam, also arguments from another group internally in the Jewish people, which had already been developed at that time, and that's the group known as the Karaites. And Sadiqan was credited with undermining the religion of Karaism, because they had become very widespread and popular at the time, they continue to be so, they still exist today, but they're not as powerful as they used to be. And Sadiqan fought against them, and many aspects of his commentary are responses to charism in his day and time. That's the first example of commentary that is directed and related to the context. The second one, fast forwards another two, three hundred years, to northern France, in the 1100s. There is a movement begun by Rashi and continued by his grandsons, Rashmur ben Meir, the Rashbam, and by his students, known as the Pshat movement of Northern France in the 12th century. And one of the things that we notice about the commentary in the 12th century is that it's very much focused upon a simple reading of the text, what we call Shushon Shomikra. Unlike the previous uh, generations where there was a great emphasis on presentations, certainly from Rashi, which explains the Midrashic understanding of the Chumash from the point of view as developed 
by Chazal over hundreds and hundreds of years. In the 12th century, you have a whole group of rabbinic leaders, uh, among them beginning with Rashi, but really developed by the Rashbam, and a, in somebody in the next generation known as Yosef Korshor of Onion, who developed a totally different approach known as Pshutoshom Mikra. And this is the way, the lens, the glasses upon which they put on in order to understand the Chumash. Now, a question arises, why was this approach developed during this time and place? What happened? Why, why all of a sudden is there an interest in Shutosho Mikra? In order to understand that, you have to understand what's happening to the Jewish community at this time. And one of the things that's happening is that the Jews are living among, and now we're moving from Muslims to Christians. And the Christians at this time, the Jews are a small group, population, among a society that is a Christian society, that's a believing society. The whole, there's no separation of church and state. It's all a Christian society. And they're firm believers. And uh, they are interested, particularly the church, are irked by the existence of the Jewish people. And uh, we can irritate people. Jewish people can irritate people. And we irritated them. Our existence, our mere existence, irritated them. And they could not tolerate the fact that this old representatives of the Old Testament and the old religion were still alive and well and developing and producing in northern France, and this is the Bale Toslot school that was flourishing at this time, and existed among this time. And one of the things that they started to do, the priests started to do, is from their monasteries, they began to write manuals for their parishioners that when they would come into contact with other Jews, they should challenge the Jews about certain phrases in the Torah. And say, how could you believe in Judaism? How could you do this? How could you say this? When the Torah proves, number one, that Christianity is the true religion, and number two, you see things that in the Bible itself that are denigrating to the Jewish people. So how can you continue to be Jews? And Jews were under tremendous pressure. I'm not talking now about the Crusades when there was no discussion. Right? It's either you accept uh, Yashla, or we kill you. Either you, well, it's not either you get out of you because at that time it was too late. And, and Jews were massacred and killed in the first crusade of 1095-1096, in the second crusade in the middle of the 12th century, at the end of the 12th century, the third crusade, and on. During those times there's no discussion. But in the beginning, at the time of Rashi, and the time of the Rashbam, in the beginning of the 12th century, and even later in the 12th century, the relations in general between Jews and the Christian population was fairly cordial. Jews lived together with them. They didn't live, you know, all spread out. They lived in Jewish communities like in Tinek. They had certain areas that were primarily Jewish, right? But, and they wanted to be near the shuls, but they were not closed off like later, or we'll see with the Kliyakar, where Jews are actually living totally cut off from the Christian society around them. They interacted, there were marketplaces, <coughs> Jews were involved in, um, uh, were merchants and involved in buying and selling with the fair days, they, were, they owned land, they produced wine, as you know from Rashi, and they had um, Rajabam raised, had milk and had cows and, and produced milk. And they were, they had 
they bought and sold with the non-Jews. There was interaction, and there was also um, a contact because Jews, like today, had non-Jewish servants who ran the households. And we have many Shalot and Shavot dealing with these questions. When the non-Jewish woman who cleaned the house, I don't know if they did baby care, but uh, if they allowed them to do that, but uh, that was the, the mother's role. I don't think women, uh, well, there were some women who did work and were, were merchants, but basically they took care of the kids, but the, the uh, Jewish, um, uh, these non-Jewish people worked in their homes, cleaned their homes, were the maids and servants in the homes. And there were a lot of questions going on between them, um, which came up, you know, how could you say this? And, and they were given these manuals in order to uh, <coughs> encourage them in this interaction between uh, Jews and Christians. As a result, Jews had to respond. So there were manuals that were written in response. Sefer Nitzachon Yashan, Sefer Hamakne, Sefer Melchamot Hashem, which were written by rabbis along Pashat Shavua, saying if there was a story of a Christian meeting a Jew, he challenged him on this verse, and this is what the, the Jewish person said in response. Yeah. It's interaction on both sides. Say it again? It's interaction on both right. sides. Seems to imply. Again, it what? Seems to imply yeah. greater degree of literacy. I would have was that then on either side. Right. Right. Definitely on our side, there was literacy. We see the Balei Tosas, people that count the Torah is something that was, you know, tremendously encouraged. The question is from their side, what, what was that? Among the Jews? All, all Jews were expected to learn to read and to learn the Chumash and to, to read the Chumash. And they were educated in that. Our Tosfos movement is not a, which is developed, beginning to develop at this time, it's not some group that was cut off. It was part of, uh, it was part of society, and it was a um, huge uh, movement that developed. The number of people in Yeshiva may not be like it is today, but the, the study of Chumash, there was uh, people who knew how to read, and uh, translate and understand the Chumash. And there's not a big gap between knowing how to read translate and take a debate back to yeah. Yeah. I, I think yeah, what's described, this was something that the Jews were able and were encouraged to do and needed to. Yeah, From the Christian side, I don't know if, they, if this was something that was, you know, oral and something that they were told or... Um, from what I've read, I, I don't know exactly the extent of the literacy about it. it there were manuals that were written. That's from what I've read from the literature. Um, the, the extent of whether all of it was written or something that had been written. Right. No, I understand. Whether all of it was meant for it to be read, but to what extent was it oral also, I, I don't know on that side. So these were, the, this is what was going on during that time, and um, the, uh, the Jews needed to defend Judaism against the onslaught of these pressures from the general society. There were many conversions of Jews during this time, and we have, again, in the Sherlock and Shuvot questions that address to Rashi and later about Jews converting to Christianity and wanting to do Tshuva and come back about getting Aliyah Latorah and Dukhani for the Amud. Can they do that? And um, they were, um, there was this intense pressure 
not only during times of crusades, but all times to, to convert to Christianity. Uh, it may, it was not as widespread as later happened during the Spanish Inquisition when, uh, huge amounts of Jews, thousands of Jews converted to Christianity, but, uh, it existed nonetheless. And Jews needed ways to, to respond and to defend ourselves against these pressures. So there were these books that were written to help Jews defend themselves against it. Now that was only one way, let me just add one other point, in order to defend and argue on the same playing field, we couldn't argue from Chazal. We had to be able to argue from something that we both agreed in, and that was Shutal Shomikra, right? The famous line that they said that the prophecy refers to the birth of, virgin birth, Alma, uh, Jews had to respond and responded by saying Alma does not mean a virgin, it means a young girl and, and the proofs behind that. So that we had to be able to say, you don't know the Chumash, the Bible, the Bible doesn't prove what you're saying, it's really proving, uh, it's really saying something else. Now in addition to these manuals that were written, commentators also included within their Torah commentary references to responses that could be given by the Jews. And there's a phrase that's used by the Rashbam, by others, by the Bukhar Shar, which is called the Tshuvat Aminim. It appears several times in the Rashbam, which is Tshuvat Aminim. This comment I'm about to give you is a response to the heretics. When they come, he doesn't elaborate. All he says is with Tshuvat Aminim. But when they come and attack you and say, pa pa pa, Shuvat Aminim, the response to them, this is what you should say to them. Now sometimes the Rashbam says so explicitly, and sometimes he doesn't say so. But let me give a, uh, an explicit place where he does say it. And that is in when the Jewish people leave Mitzrayim, the women are commanded by Moshe Rabbeinu, tell the people, I want them, I want them to borrow gold and silver and dresses. Please, please, I ask you, have the women ask to borrow those things from, from their non-Jewish neighbors. Now, this is problematic because there is a degree of, um, you know, I mean, we would be bothered by this, right? I mean, did we intend to give it back? Were we planning to borrow it? To borrow this and bring it back to them? I don't think so, right? I don't think it was meant to be a, you know, temporary. In fact, by the way, the whole thing was meant to be temporary. Was what did Moshe ask for? We're going to go out for three days, and presumably come back, and we're borrowing these things for a few days. Now, the Rashbam on this passage says that the meaning of the Sha'Allah means matana gemura, means a permanent gift. Don't ask them for, to borrow it, ask them for a permanent gift. Now, is that what Sha'Allah means to say today? Certainly we would say Lish'ol means to borrow something. But uh, he's claiming, and he brings several proofs from the Chumash itself, to indicate that the word Sha'Allah means to ask for a, for a gift, for a permanent gift. And at the end he says that this is Omet Shuto, this is the shot of the Chumash, 
And it's a response to heretics. Now again, if you're just reading through his commentary, if you happen to be studying Rashbam, you might read those words and you may gloss over them. But when you begin to realize that what he's writing is within a historical context, what he's writing is at a time, and you take a look at the other books, the books that are being written by Jews, if you have access to the other books that are written by the Christians, then you can really see it, but um, in, the, in the, the manuals that are written by the Jews, they will say on this verse that the Christians claim that the Jews are a bunch of Ganovim. You Jews are a bunch of Ganovim, you steal our money, you're Jewish money lenders, you take our money and you rip us off, you charge high interest rates, and, and, and you cheat us, and where did you get it from? You got it from your ancestors. It's genetic. Because your ancestors did the same thing. They cheated and deceived the Egyptians, and they took things from them as if to borrow, and they ran off and stole it. And they go back also. There are other cases. This wasn't the only case. You're all deceivers. Jacob deceived his father Isaac, his own father he deceived him. And he stole the Bechorah from him. And it all started off even before that. But Jacob took the, the Bechorah from his brother Esau. Now of course Esau is a record from our point of view, and, and they see it that way as well. Esau is the ancestor of the Christian people. And Jacob is a representative of the Jewish people. And Jacob is cheating and stealing and lying. And his brother, Esau, is half dead. And what can this Jew, Jacob, do? He's dead on the floor. He says, I'll give you some lentil soup if you give me, sell me your Bechorah. So for a bowl of soup, Esau is forced to sell the Bechorah. These are criticisms, attacks, that the Christian world was leveling at the Jewish people around them at that time, and we have records of it, as I said, in these manuals, where there are actual debates between the Christians and Jews, and the Rashbam here is saying, hey, you got it wrong. Allah does not mean to borrow as if we're cheating them. It means to ask for a permanent gift. Again, this is not the, you know, the, the theme in every single pasuk in the Rashbam, um, but it periodically appears. In the writings in the next generation of Rabbi Yosef Shor, there are many more countless times where he includes in his commentary references to anti-Christian polemics. Uh, one simple example, and this is over and over again, but in the three angels that appear to Avram Avinu, the church says that is a proof of the Trinity because it says that that God appeared to Abraham and then nothing right nothing and then the next passage is that three people uh, Abraham raises his and sees three people so Rashi is sensitive to that and Rashi says you know why did God appear to him that was basically for Bikr Cholim of the Prismila of the previous generation, of the previous parsha. <coughs> However, if you don't go that way, which is certainly not Shutosho Mikra, because it's the first pasuk of the new chapter, if you don't go that route, then where, where does God say anything? So, Chazal say that 
these three people were angels. Now that's somewhat problematic because that leads straight into the argument of the Christians. That he raised up his, what was the revelation? What was the revelation? And in the next verse it says, he raised up his eyes and he saw who happened to be three angels or representations of God representing according to Christianity the Trinity. And so here you have clearly that the appearance of God is in the form of three parts. And that was one of the proofs that they brought. Now, Bechor Shah writes on this passage that it's true that Chazal say that these are Malachim. However, the correct understanding is that they're really human beings. Now, Bechor Shah was the one in the Bali Tosas. He was a student. He's quoted throughout many times in Shas, in the Tosas and Shas. He was a student of Rabbi Nutam, lived in the city of Orleans. And He's certainly a proof man, and he certainly accepted Chazal and their interpretations. But over here, um, possibly for Shutosha Mikra, possibly also for these polemical verses, he says that these are not angels, that they are human beings. Again, within the context of the defense of Judaism against uh, the pressures and the arguments of Christianity at that time. I want to move to the next commentary, and this one is of a different order, and that is the commentary of the Kliyakar. Uh, Kliyakar was Ephraim Lunches, and we're fast forwarding another few hundred years, to Poland in, uh, in the middle of the 16th century. The Jewish world has um, changed dramatically at this point already. I'm going to go back and talk a little about uh, Spain and the Spanish Explosion in my fourth example. But in, in, the, in Kliyakar, the Ashkenazic world, as a result of all the uh, crusades and all the persecutions in Ashkenaz and the uh, Black Plague, uh, there's a major migration away from Germany and the beginning of the Poland, believe it or not, welcomed the Jews. Kazimir the third, the fourth, someone in there, uh, welcomed in the Jews, and of course the, the Ramah quotes the line that Pol, the name Poland comes from Poland, come here, stay here, and invitation to stay in, in Poland, it was very inviting. There was a golden period of, of uh, Polish Jewry, Ashkenazic Polish Jewry, more or less from around 1500 till around 1648-1649 with the Chalmanitsky massacres when that golden era came to an end. The Jewish world was cut off, unlike the northern France, and certainly unlike in the Spanish world, when there was a great interaction between Jewish society and uh, the secular society around them, as we have in the United States today. In Poland, the Jews were cut off, living separately, in, in separate areas, and uh, not connected at all to the surrounding culture. Is in the golden period or this is the golden period? In the golden period, they were they had their whole institutions. They didn't know they they didn't interact with the with the Christian world, um, and um, they lived in these separate Jewish areas. They were very highly developed with the whole school systems from the Cheder, the Shiva Tzitana, Shiva Gedol. They had a whole uh, developed uh, school system and a, uh, a whole Jewish society that had developed. And they were also beginning a whole nouveau riche uh, group of Jews were beginning to develop. Jews 
were not only in money lending, they were in other areas as well. And Jews were beginning to become wealthy. Uh, the clay, clay akar of Ephraim Lunchitz was a, what was known as a darshan. And a darshan is a person who made his profession by going around and speaking. Now it's not that popular, at least when I was growing up, it wasn't that popular. Today, I think it's becoming a lot more popular. That where you have speakers who go around and make a living by going places, in my case, not necessarily, not necessarily the case, but they go around making a living from going to, from place to place, speaking in, in uh, giving lectures and making a panasa. And that's what the Dashanim were. They went from community to community and they went around and they spoke to vast audiences. Now, part of the said also was there were no televisions and no radios and no uh, newspapers uh, at that time and there was no entertainment. So one of the sources of entertainment and of news were the Darshanim who used to travel from town to town and would tell Jews in one community what was happening in another country, another community, and what's happening. They were the source of news. They were also the source of entertainment. Now in the case of Rabbi Ephraim Lunches, he was also a person who did not control his tongue. And when he saw um, uh, problems in the Jewish world, he did not hold himself back from expressing them. In fact, he writes in the introduction to one of his works that the following statement, quoted into English, I saw my goal as pointing out, pointing out the moral and religious failures of the Jewish community so they could correct them. And he also writes elsewhere that he has been uh, not so well liked in many communities and that was part of the reason he had to move from community to community because he was often chased out after he finished his Russia. <laughs> uh, an example of this. Now, by the way, the criticism at his time, first of all, is fascinating. We call that tough love today. Tough love. There was alcoholism. He has a fascinating description of Purim in Poland, in Lublin. And the description, I mean, I live in Yerushalayim, and you walk the streets of Purim, and you see mommy drunks walking the streets. Uh, he describes this, I don't know if you have that in Phoenix, but you have that in, in Yerushalayim. <coughs> what? <laughs> well, it was, was not only a problem on Purim in, in Poland as well, but it was primarily, he has a whole description of men dressing as women and women dressing as men and going in these gangs and groups. It's a really strange description of the Jewish community. And, and drunks walking around and vomiting. And it's a, a, a real, and he comes out of a whole diatribe, not in Spanish, it's in Olo Sephraim, in his book of Drashot. And he comes out attacking this greatly. He also attacks the, the wealthy class for the fact that they're not giving charity to the poor. There's a growing gap between the wealthy and the poor. And periodically in his commentary on, in the Kleokar, he comes out lashing out against the wealthy. He also attacks the leadership, the rabbinic leadership, for being full of themselves. Again, you can see why he wasn't so popular. You get up in the shul and start attacking the rabbis and saying they're not, they're only concerned about their own kavod, their own honor. They're not really concerned about developing prunkites and religion among the people and they're only in it for, for kavod. So, these were attacks that he, that he had against uh, the Jewish community. 
at the end, as an example, at the end of, uh, in his parish in Kliyotra, at the end of Sefer Breshis, <clears throat> he talks about the Medrash that says, Vayichi Yaakov, Veret Mitzrayim. And he's troubled, right? Rashi says, why is this Parsha Zustuma? There's no space between the end of Vayigash and the beginning of Vayichi. There should be a Parsha, it's, it's Tuma, it's closed up. Why is there no space? As appears a new paragraph or several spaces between the beginning of one paragraph and the next. So Rashi says that, and he says, gives two answers, and one of them is, Bikesh, the famous one, Bikesh Yaakov, the Galot et Akesh, the Banav Nistami Menu. Yaakov wanted to reveal when Mashiach was going to come, and he was taken away from him, he was closed off, and that's represented by the closed face that his Nebuah was taken away and was taken from him. So the Kriyaka wants to understand this Rashi. And at the end he says, of his comment, a long comment, he says, We don't know why was the Nebuah taken away from Yaakov. Therefore, this is closed off. It's to put it together with Vayeshev Yisrael, the Eretz Goshen. L'fi shemehayadua shiimshach nezek gadol min yediyat hakeitz. Because there's a great danger in knowing the end when Mashiach is going to come. Right? You go, you read a book, and you read the end of the book, it takes away from the whole reading of the book. You know the end of the story. Right? You see some sort of movie, and you see the end of the movie, it takes away, it colors your whole scene of the film. Ki adorot hayodim shagula because the earlier generations who knew at that time, there was no, the Mashiach was not going to come during their time. Lo Hashem. They didn't seek God. They didn't ask and pray to God for redemption. Because they knew He wasn't going to come then. The commentary, because from knowing when Mashiach is going to come, Yimashiach Nezek Zeh, a danger is going to happen. Shalom Yikru Osi, Velo Yibat Shufanai, Pneha Dorota Kodmim. They're not going to pray to me, they're not going to ask me. The Yibat Shuleshev Yeshiva Shokeba, Barsoto Amim, Liotlem Achuzab Arsotam, Kitoshavim, Ukimit Yashim Minha Gula. They're going to be very happy sitting and living where they are, giving up, forfeiting. They know there's no redemption going on. And they're going to become permanent in their lands, giving up on redemption. Of Cain, that's what happened. The Jews knew at the time of Yaakov that they were going from the uh, prophecy to Avraham. They knew that they were only going to be saved and brought back to Egypt, to Eretz Israel. Only several hundred years later, the Mashiach wasn't going to come. So therefore, they could sit pretty and not, and not pray to God. Therefore, when Yaakov wanted to tell his children when Mashiach is going to come, God did not tell them when Mashiach is going to come. 
יבקשו את פני השם ואת דוד מלכם, ולא יבקשו להיות תושבים בארצות העמים. So that the Jews would not become too comfortable in their countries, and they would constantly wait for the coming of the Mashiach. Now he goes on to say, so what does that have to do with Vayeshev, with the end of Vayigash, where it says, Vayeshev Yisrael Be'eretz Mitzrayim Be'eretz Goshen? What does that have to do? That's a very nice pasuk, right? An innocuous pasuk that the Israelites dwelled in the land of Mitzrayim and Goshen by That's not a bad pasuk, but this, the Klei Yakar writes on that pasuk. Call pasuk Zeb Ashmat Yisrael. This pasuk is a critique of the Jewish people. Who Ki Akharish Baruchu Gazar Alehem, because God commanded. You're going to be foreigners in a land. And they wanted to be Toshavim. They wanted to be permanent members of the society. This is our land. In a place where they were told to be Gerim, foreigners. He wanted to live there. Therefore, this verse is criticizing the Jewish people in Mitzrayim. That they want to become citizens of a country that they don't belong to. When they first came, they said, In the beginning, they only went there temporarily. And now they changed their ways. They were so entrenched in Egypt, they didn't want to leave there. Why did God have to take us out of the Trani of Chazakah? Not only because of the Egyptians, because of the Jews. We didn't want to leave Egypt. We had it, believe it or not, even then, he had a Yankees out of there, and those Jews who refused to leave the Trian made to Bishloshet Yemei Afeilah. But the Kliyakah does not end with this. The Kliyakah is that this message, this reality, is in our sins, Today, in our land in Poland, the Kriyaka writes, this is true for the Jews in Poland, even though we don't know what the case is going to be. Rabin Hema Ameyaret, Hamishyashim Arsasanim. There are many, many Ameyaret who are living here in Poland. Ubonim Lahem Batin, Spunim, Chashuvim. They build huge palaces. Vishalabonim Binyanakium. They build these big, beautiful mansions. Ubisiba, and they're not planning. They're not interested when Mashiach is going to come. They may say it in the Davine. They may say, you know, some of David Azakhver Kashmiah. And they say, well, you shall be and then we want to come and see and go back to Jerusalem. But they don't really mean it, because they don't want to go back and give up everything that they built in Poland. And therefore, the, the Kliyaka writes, 
ובסיבה זו לעולם אינן דורשים את פני השם בכל עץ. ונדע ונדע in northern Portugal, and uh, he lived during the time of the Spanish Inquisition and he experienced it. And in his commentary, the Torah Mar, which is a fascinating mixture of Kabbalah and Pshat and Remez, all the different, he combines all the different approaches to the Chumash, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Sava has many autobiographical comments throughout the commentary. Uh, one of the things that we know about him is that uh, the Spanish explosion in 1492 uh, brought thousands of Jews, uh, destroyed the whole Spanish world, but many of them fled to Portugal, which was, had the king at that time was a positive towards the Jewish people. And so many thousands of Jews fled to Portugal. Um, however, uh, I don't remember his name, uh, it probably was King Alfonso, forgive me if that wasn't his name. He died shortly after 1492, and a heir of his, called him one, because these are typical names. King Juan took over, and uh, he was not so, it was a Melchadash, he was not so positive towards the Jewish people. And the church had uh, greater sway, and what happened eventually is that the policy of the Portuguese government uh, accepted the whole policies of this Ferdinand and Isabel, and now they began to put in place the Inquisition and the attempt to force all Jews to convert to Christianity, and he had thousands and thousands of Jews in Portugal. Rabbi Yaakov Saba was living in Porto, Porto at the time. All the Jews were told that they had to go down to Lisbon, and he was running away from Porto number one, and he was also, he started to run to Lisbon, and there was an attempt to gather all the Jews in Lisbon. Before he gets down to Lisbon, he had with him a manuscript of his commentary to Saramar. Before he got down there, somebody told him that if you're found, with your Torah commentary, you will be killed because it was against Christian law to hold anything of, which is not a Christian um, uh, information, and this is uh, heretical information on the Bible, you'll be killed. So he took his commentary, Surah Mark, and he writes in the introduction to, I think, Pasha Zayera, that I buried my commentary under an olive tree north of Lisbon. Now, one of these days, I hope to lead tours, and I'll leave a little excavation and search for that. Uh, I'll tree north of Lisbon and I'll become wealthy because I'll discover this ancient manuscript. But until then, it rem probably remains there. And his original commentary, Sora Mark, uh, was buried there. We have his commentary because he later wrote it. And I'll tell you in a few minutes what happened to him. He came into Lisbon, he's arrested, and, uh, and he's put into jail. At that time, all the Jews, and this we don't know necessarily from him, but from other uh, eyewitnesses, 
Thousands and thousands of Jews were put into churches. Young children are ripped away from their parents. They baptize the children. Parents who refuse to convert are killed. It's a tremendous tragedy, a continuation of the, of the Holocaust of the Spanish Inquisition and expulsion of 1492, which destroyed Spanish Jewry, um, hundreds of years in, of, uh, of Spanish Jewry. And uh, thousands of Jews were killed, thousands of Jews converted to Christianity, which you still see today the appearance of Moranos in many communities in Spain and Portugal. And, uh, and, and many, of course, many Jews escaped and had to leave Spain. Uh, and the same thing happened in Portugal. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Saba escaped from prison and got onto a boat and uh, escaped through the closest country, which is Morocco, where many Jews came um, from Spain and Portugal, and settled in Morocco, and it was there, Morocco said the Muslims were in control there, so therefore the, the uh, Inquisition did not lead, you know, did not follow them, as it did, let's say, Barbanel when he went to Italy, so the Inquisition, you know, followed him and members of his family to Italy, but in, in uh, Morocco it didn't, and it was there that he rewrote his commentary on the Kumbh, he became a rabbi and a leader over there as well. In his commentary to the last uh, section of Vayikra, um, on the Tolchacha of Bukhukosai, there's a passage that says, a strange passage that's put in there, that I will remember the bris of Yaakov, I will remember the bris of Yitzchak, Yitzchak, and I remember the bris of Abraham. And there are many strange things about the Pasuk and uh, uh, Rashi and the commentators talk about it. Everybody talks about it, but Rabbi Yaakov Sabbath talks and focuses on the order of the others. You would expect, Rashi talks about this as well, you would expect it to be Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov in chronological order. Why is it reversed? I will remember Yaakov, I will remember Yitzchak, and I will remember Abraham in reverse order. So Rabbi Yaakov Saba, again, in light of what you've heard about his background and what the tragedies he experienced, he's able to comment about this pasuk. And what he writes is that Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are parallel to the Bayis Rishon, to Bayis Sheni, and to Bayis Shlishi. Avram Abinu is parallel not only to Bayis Rishon, but to the whole Golos that led up to Bayis Rishon and Bayis Rishon. Yitzchak is the whole Golos of after Korban Bayis Rishon, of Golos Babel, until Bayis Sheni and including Bayis Sheni. And Yaakov is the representative of the Jewish people from the Golos after the destruction of the Second Temple, the Golos that we're still living in until the building of the Third Base of Mikdash. And he says, therefore, we're talking now, this part of the finish is talking now about the future third bias, and therefore we talk first about Yaakov, because that's the one that we are identifying with. And he adds another aspect, and that is that we refer, when we're talking about the third Golos, leading up to the Binyan Beis HaMikdash, we're talking about a Golis that's different from the Golis of Mitzrayim, we're talking about a Golis that's different from the Golis Babel, we're talking about a miserable, hard Golis that is parallel to the life of Yaakov. Yaakov's entire life, as he told Paro, my life is short, but it's filled with misery. He's suffered from Dina, he suffered with Yosef and his brothers, he had to leave Eretz Israel, 
one problem after another. He had sorrows throughout his entire life. But eventually, there was Geula, there was redemption. And the Rabbi Yaakov Saba points out, he says, just like today, Aragolus has experienced things that we've never experienced before, horrors and tragedies and atrocities that we've never experienced before in Jewish history. And it's Yaakov who represents, who also underwent a difficult Golis in his life, who is the symbol for us that we will survive and we will achieve the Geula, the future Geula. These are four examples that um, I think um, demonstrate the importance. You can understand the commentary without understanding the background, but it really develops and uh, enhances our understanding and appreciation of the commentary. Tend off, I just want to jump off on a theme of what Yaakov Saba said. Um, we're also living in a very difficult time. I live in Israel, and um, you know, you never know what's going to happen the next day, where it's going to happen from, whether something's going to happen in Gaza, whether something's going to happen in the north. Another year or so down the line, Iran is threatening to nuke the whole area. Um, two months ago, on a Thursday night, I was going to do my Shabbos uh, shopping in Chipako, and I get in the car, and I get ready to do the shopping, and my kids run out, and they tell me, I'm don't go to the store. It's right near Mechazarab. And we just heard on the news, um, I guess it was a shooting in Mechazarab, and, and people were killed there, and they, they killed one of the, uh, one of the um, uh, Arabs, uh, murderers, but uh, there were rumors that there were others who were roaming around the neighborhood, don't go outside, and don't go to the store. I went anyway, because I figured I wasn't going to let this even though it's five minutes away from Mecca's Arab, but the threat and the dangers can happen at any time, at any place, because we, as representatives of Akash Baruch Hu, um, are right to, to get all this uh, anti-Semitism that's directed at us, and this is not something that's happening now, a long history of this, but as Rabbi Yaakov Sabah says, the Bishkut Yaakov of Inu, and Bishkut also, I happen to be here leaving today, but the Israel Day Parade that is with the unity of the Jewish people. And when I, the next day when I went to the funeral, it was beautiful to see that it really, uh, which is uh, unusual for Israel, that funeral united Jews from Jews, or even from Jews and secular Jews in ways that unfortunately only tragedy can. But the with the unity of the Jewish people coming together to march together in defense of Eretz Israel and Am Israel, you should all have the Zohar for the coming of the Guru soon. Thank you. Thank period, it had an impact upon his commentary. Again, we are not products of the society. That's, you know, some people believe that Jews are just products of what's going on in the society around them. 
Uh, I don't believe that, but I believe that we are affected by it. And uh, the Rambam was affected by this Muslim society, and he also reacted to it, and he had to react and to respond to the Jews who were living there. And similarly, the Sparno who was living in Renaissance Italy, it impacted. There's a certain, definitely a humanistic aspect to his commentary with the focus on the human being and psychology that is certainly the basis for the Muslim movement in the 19th century that uh, colors uh, much of his uh, commentary. So each society and the place and times has an uh, impact. Again, it's not the whole thing in every comment, but there's a flavor of it that, that occurs yeah. I've uh, seen this methodology applied for the Tanayim in the uh, ancient Greco-Roman world, uh, in specifically Perkiavo. And I'm wondering... Uh, Rabbi Leo? I've seen it in a number of places. I, I don't know, yeah, again, I, religious and secular right. uh, academics, but I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm cautious. I've been teaching this for many years. I'm cautious of overdoing this and making up every single statement as a reaction to the time. I think that that's... Um, you know, fallacious, and I don't think you know, I think he's going overboard. But uh, but uh, certainly in general, like in the Pshat movement, and in specific comments, it does exist. I mean, clearly in Shumata Minim is a reflection of that. So I, I I try to keep some sort of balance between the two. Have you know, there is a position that says that any comment in these rabbis has nothing to do with the time period that they're living in and he's totally disconnected from it and you know Torah is eternal and his impact is is not affected by anything. So I, I don't uh, accept that that you know street position either. Yeah. Yes. Okay, thank you very much and thank you. Yeah. yeah. If anybody's interested I do have some books here. What? What's the difference between the first volume and the second volume? So the first volume is first volume is yeah Chazal Tagumim Zohar Tagumim Spanish language and the Bali Bistola. This volume is Rashi Rashbam Moshe Tzvi Bali Tzvi Writing the first collection of Ezra and then the comparison. Okay, I'll get a set of quotes. I'll get it. I'll get a few. How much are they? It's uh, 35.